Written and directed by Woody Allen, these words grace every Allen film and it makes a very specific point. Allen doesn't like the grander title of a film by Woody Allen, a credit you see from many other directors. For him, his films are collaborations. He would be nothing without his team and he has two roles for all his films. He writes them and he directs them. Yes, he sometimes does other things like star in them, but he has an amazing crew that do their job better than Alan could. Alan was a talented writer from his teenage years. He was submitting jokes for advertising agencies and TV shows. He went to writing comedy and stand-up. By the time he made films, the written part of written and directed was solid. The directing side was where Alan veered wildly over the course of his five-decade career. Alan changed his style and experimented over the years. He also collaborated with a series of talented cinematographers, many of whom had a distinct style. And Alan was happy to work in the style of these cinematography masters like Gordon Willis, Carla De Palma, and Vittorio Storaro. By contrast, Alan has only really worked with three editors. Ralph Rosenblum, Susan E. Morse, and Alyssa Lepselter had to be chameleons and work on any idea that occurred to Alan. Alan had these long relationships with editors because he edited films differently to most directors. Editing became part of Alan's creative process and often he only found the story during the edit. And through it he emerged with his own style. It's a style born from Alan's artistic temperament. There would be longer takes, very little coverage and a preferred colour scheme. Alan's use of the camera has led to many cinematic highs. His insistent use of black and white to his experiments in mockumentary, to breaking all the rules with haphazard editing, to just film after film of gorgeous shots, Alan has made a career of incredible camera work. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast. This week is special episode number two. This episode, we look at Woody Allen's relationship to the camera, his work with cinematographers and editors, and how it led to some of the most memorable shots in cinematic history. There's light spoilers here for some of Allen's films, You'll be mostly okay, it won't ruin your enjoyment, but we will talk about a lot of them. It makes more sense if you go see a lot of them first, and then come back. All right, let's see. Oh, you see that guy? Mm -hmm. That's Papadakis, the director of the film we're gonna see. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, he's very arty, pretentious, one of those assholes who shoots all his films in black and white. <laughs> when Alan started as a filmmaker, he came to it as a writer. He had written What's New Pussycat, a 1966 vehicle for Warren Beatty whose crazy production meant it ended up starring Peter O'Toole instead, and Peter Sellers, and Alan himself. That film was a big learning experience for Alan. He hated the final product, and because he was in the cast, he got to see close up all the ways his script was being ruined. Alan's desire to direct came in part from that desire for control. Skip to 1969, and Alan had a deal to direct his own script with Take the Money and Run. Learning from what's new Pussycat, Alan's aim was competence. He used a mobile film studio called the Cinemobile to dart around San Francisco and actually came in under budget and ahead of schedule. The cinematographer for his first film was Lester Shaw, who came from a TV background and they just crunched through the shot list. Alan has discussed that the film was made on common sense. Simply, what the camera needed to see was where the camera had to point. Alan shot a lot of stuff but got stuck when it came to the edit. The film wasn't funny enough. In came Ralph Rosenblum, who had worked on Mel Brooks' The Producers. I would say he's the first really top-tier talent to join Alan's crew, and he came after production wrapped. Rosenblum helped teach Alan what was important in editing, 
He moved the story around, cut out several funny moments for the sake of the story, and cut the film to new music. Rosenblum would work on all of Alan's films up to interiors in 1978, with the exception of Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex, which was edited by Eric Albertson, who also had some minor TV credits. And Alan would continue the habit of wrapping production before starting to edit. Now, most films, the editor is assembling scenes as the film is being shot to save time and give people something to look at. For Alan, editing was part of the writing and he wanted to be there to shape the story. With Rosenblum, Alan would refine how to put his comic style into cinemas. What were you trying to say in this picture? I was just trying to be funny. One of the hallmarks is the way they did silent comedy. Soundtracked by Peppy Jazz, Alan usually improvised scenes of comic farce, like several of the robot scenes in Sleeper. The nature of this comedy is you want to see it on screen, which meant Alan would do very little cutting. The other thing that would happen around Sleeper was that Alan started to care about the beauty of shots. He came in on budget and on time for his first few films, but with Sleeper, he started having the crew wait around all day just to get the right light in the sky. Helping Alan craft these shots were his early cinematographers, notably David M. Walsh on Sleeper and Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex. Alan wanted to keep working with him, but he didn't want to move to New York. French cinematographer Ghislaine Cloquet took the reins for Love and Death. He worked on great films like Althazar Balthazar and The Young Girls of Rochefort in the 60s. Alan shot that film in Europe, but as he got more set on only filming in New York, he needed another solution. And that solution came in the form of Gordon Willis. Gordon Willis's reputation would be set if he had never worked with Woody Allen because he was the cameraman for The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. He worked on other amazing films like All the President's Men, but there is a reason The Godfather is still taken apart by film classes everywhere. It's a masterpiece. Gordon Willis has a nickname, the Prince of Darkness, because he prefers not to use large lights. He's happy to have shadows, sometimes lighting a scene with nothing but some candles. But as much as he had things that he liked and a style, he was actually a technical whiz. He had the technical know-how to make any of Alan's ideas come to life. Take Annie Hall, which was full of ideas, and Willis kept up with every step. Willis worked out how to do those long shots where Alvy and Rob walk into screen from huge distances away. He created two rooms next to each other that worked as a split screen. Rosenblum brought his comedy instincts to this whirlwind piece about a breakup. The other big innovation for Alan on screen with Annie Hall was the colour scheme. Alan and Willis washed Annie Hall in browns, oranges and warm colours. Blues are used very sparingly. It's a habit that would continue throughout his films. Of course, the most daring colour scheme was the lack of one. Black and white was going out of style in the late 70s, but current styles never mattered to Alan. He wanted to show New York in black and white, and he did so with 1979's Manhattan, creating one of the most celebrated films in cinema in terms of cinematography. Alan would use black and white for several films in the 80s, despite black and white film labs getting harder to find. Alan eventually had to buy and build various film development technology to continue to make black and white films. His last black and white film was 1998's Celebrity, although he tried to make black and white films afterwards but by then technology had moved on. I think it's actually Gordon Willis's influence on Alan and working with him that made Alan think about cinematography 
color warmth, framing shots, and the beauty of images. It's a long way from just pointing the camera to where it needed to see. Alan had wanted to do better, but Willis could talk to Alan and make it happen. Willis was also meticulous and would take hours to set up shots correctly and showed Alan what effort in this area of filmmaking could bring to his work. It's also worth mentioning Dick Mingaloni. He was Alan's camera operator from the late 70s on. He worked on almost 20 Alan films and even appeared as a camera operator in Celebrity. Go, people. Letters are fading. Larry, where's talent? We have right, five right, seconds. Right, right. The pilot wants to know how the placement of the placement's are. fine. Hey, Dick, were you able yeah. to keep that in shot? Okay, how? Where's how? Yeah. Okay. Listen, I can we hold can, it for a few more seconds. Can we must get, get first team on set? The letters are fading. Come on, guys. We got Alan's growing skill can be seen in Stardust Memories, where Alan used imagery to tell story. There's the changing wallpapers that reflect Sandy's mood and all the interesting close-up faces. Alan started to use visuals to do more of the storytelling. Two other important elements started to creep in at this time. First is Alan's habit of just having one side of the conversation on screen, or even sometimes none as in Annie Hall or Manhattan where there are conversations seen over a car being driven. In Stardust Memories, there's the incredible scene where Sandy remembers Dory and we hear Sandy's voice, but we only see Dory's face. Most directors would cut back and forth between two people talking, but Alan started to experiment with just seeing one side of the conversation, and it creates this intense intimacy. He would use the trick many more times, usually on his beautiful leading ladies. It's memorable in Husbands and Wives, Celebrity, Sweet and Lowdown, and many, many more. The other is the long take. Modern films are usually made up of well over a thousand shots, sometimes two or three thousand. It averages about three seconds a cut. Even in the early part of last century, most films had a cut every 10 to 20 seconds. Alan started having shots in films that lasted well over two minutes. And these weren't some stunt or showy set pieces where you go back and marvel at how a scene has no cuts. Alan would use them for conversation scenes and his actors would have to deal. It was like filming a play on a film set and some of Alan's films would feature dozens of these long takes. The scene where Alvy waits in line at the cinema and pulls out Marshall McLuhan is a long take. These are essentially little micro plays, and because Marshall McLuhan kept screwing up his lines, all the extras, cast and crew had to do long take after long take. The actors would have to remember all their dialogue, and words started getting around that only the best actors could handle what Alan was asking of his cast. I heard, I heard what you're saying. You, you know nothing of my work. You mean my whole fallacy is wrong. How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. The high watermark of Alan's work with Gordon Willis was Zelig. Alan and Willis spent a long time trying to match the film stocks and ageing effects to, to create an authentic documentary look. It was a technical marvel that was pre-digital. Only a wizard like Willis could do it. And also a mad screenwriter like Alan would think of it. It led to Willis's first Academy Award nomination. Ralph Rosenblum didn't enjoy working on Alan's 1978 drama, Interiors. He had a comedy background and decided it was time for a change and left. His assistant, Susan E. Morse, took over and would work with Alan for the next two decades, editing 21 of Alan's films. In her first film in charge, she pitched the opening montage to Manhattan. It is a pretty impressive way to start your editing career. Throughout the 70s and 80s, Alan was still relying on the editing process to find the film. 
All his early comedies were strung together to find some sort of narrative well and truly after production had wrapped. Alan would then be forced into reshoots to tie the plot together. By the mid-80s, budget and time for reshoots was baked into the production schedule. Even the cast was booked for the extra time and were not allowed to work on other films. This meant instead of scrambling in the edit to make a film, editing became part of the writing, in a way. Alan could completely wipe out subplots or reshoot scenes. Key Alan films like 1988's Another Woman and 1989's Crimes and Misdemeanors were mostly reshot, with Alan and Morse finding the film in the editing process. With Alan's more anthology films like Radio Days and Everyone Says I Love You, Alan shot lots of extra scenes knowing he would have the chance in editing to make it work. To be honest, Alan's habit of reshooting kind of got out of hand. He was famous for cutting famous actors out of his films completely. The cast would wait for opening night to see if they even made it. But she can't be in here. Why not? Come on. Governor Cecilia, my money is good up here. Don't give me much money. But it upsets the balance. back, I told you he'd be back. Can we get on with the plot now? How can we with her here? Ralph Rosenblum was great, but he really did love comedy and Morse was more able to adapt to the whims of Alan's work. She would cut slow films and fast films. She cut to all manner of music and filming styles. I also find it interesting that Morse stopped working for other directors by the 80s, mainly. It gave Alan films a unique rhythm, one that could only be cooked up by Alan and Susan E. Morse together. Rosenblum left and five films later, so did Gordon Willis. Alan turned to Carlo De Palma an Italian cinematographer who worked with Michelangelo Antonioni on classics like Blow Up. De Palma was nothing like Willis. Whereas Willis was meticulous and technically brilliant, De Palma was, as Alan described him, a hack and peck primitive. De Palma used available lighting and worked within the set or location. Willis's long shots were mostly locked off and the actors moved around the screen. De Palma moved the camera a lot and would follow the actors. If long shots were difficult before, now the actors had to remember their lines, hit their marks, sell the scene, and dodge an Italian cameraman following them around. Alan's work with De Palma in the 80s saw a looseness that suited Alan's whirlwind of ideas. Alan could only make a film as kaleidoscopic as Radio Days, with a cinematographer as nimble and agile as De Palma. But De Palma could really dial it down in films like September, which is all set in one house, and not worry about grandness. The raw honesty would shine in De Palma's camera work. De Palma made the films more about capturing the actors in full flight and allowing them to improvise more. You can see it in the long takes in his first film with Alan, Hannah and Her Sisters. This suited Alan, who liked to shoot fast and not spend too much time setting up takes. The high watermark of their collaboration is Husbands and Wives. It almost feels like a found footage film, seven years before the Blair Witch Project. The camera and the editing is haphazard, reflecting the fractured relationships in the story. Alan, De Palma and Morse threw out all the rules and cut in the middle of a sentence and the camera swerved into any space he could find. Very good. That was terrific. That was, a, was it, was it uh, very good? Was it very well, good? I don't see the dramatic impact of it, but it did seem a little improvement from the random chaos you were encouraging. Oh, oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, you didn't like the random chaos, huh? Every cinematographer that Alan worked with after Willis and De Palma had to live in their shadows, and that includes Sven Nyqvist. De Palma had to have a break for health reasons at the end of the 80s, and Sven Nyqvist stepped in for Another Woman and Crimes and Misdemeanors. 
Nykvist was Swedish and worked with Alan's hero, Igmar Bergman. Alan had learned to love longer takes and warm colours from Bergman, but by the time he was working with Bergman's cameraman, even he was a little shocked with Alan's approach. In one film, Alan wanted to push the warm colours so much that Nykvist complained that everyone looked like a tomato. De Palma retired for good with 1997's Deconstructing Harry. Alan hired him again in 2003 for anything else, but he wasn't healthy enough. Nykvist returned for one more film, 1998's Celebrity. Celebrity was also the last film edited by Susan E. Morse, so Alan had to reinvent himself again. I, I can't do this, I'm Raleigh. sorry. I know, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Raleigh, it's actually, on. it's physically Don't do this. making me sick. Don't I do this. To, it's humiliating. It's a process, no, Raleigh. The changes Raleigh, are shit. Everything Not that shit. I did is different. shit. Different. No, it's Not different. all the changes were. Alan would not have that close relationship with a cinematographer for a long time after 1998, mainly because the tables had turned. Alan was no longer working with cinematographers older than him that he was learning from. He now knew what he wanted and hired people who could work in his style. First was Zhao Fei, who shot Sweet and Lowdown, Small Time Crooks, and The Curse of the Jade Scorpion. The Chinese cameraman spoke no English, but Alan didn't care. He had seen his work, including 1992's Raise the Red Lantern. As long as Faye could work to Alan's colour scheme and was happy to shoot quickly and do no coverage and do those long takes, Alan didn't care. Mingaloni also left and his assistant Michael Green took over as Alan's camera operator. Including his time as an assistant, he worked on over 20 Alan films, ending with Melinda and Melinda in 2004. Zhao brought some gorgeous scenes to Alan's films, but the collaboration didn't last either. For 2002's Hollywood ending, he hired Haskell Wexler, who had lensed films like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? But Wexler apparently started telling Alan what to do, what cameras he should be using, and how things should look. And sometime into the production, Alan fired him. Alan doesn't need to be told what to do anymore. Look, we're here. They never understand what the hell they're trying to do, sir. Uh, believe me, I know. I know. I'm, 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 leave the camera where it is. He's a genius. To replace Susan E. Morse, Alan turned to Alyssa Lepsalter. She had edited just one film called Walking and Talking. That indie drama was enough for Alan to take a chance on her. As of Rifkin's festival, she has matched Susie Morse's run of 21 films. Her run of 21 has not been as wildly varied as Morse's 21. Alan has relied less on the edit to find the story, but he still waits till after production is over and sits with Lepsalter every day and edits together. But more often than not, he had complete stories and was not doing massive rewrites after the initial production. Or maybe he just got better at the script level and better at executing his vision the first time around. There has been a couple of exceptions. Cafe Society's casting troubles meant a large section of the LA part of the story was rewritten and that was in the middle of production. I imagine for large ensemble films like You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger, and to roam with love, making the film flow with all the storylines is difficult work. And those last two decades of films have wonderful editing moments. Lissa Lepselter's first film, Sweet and Lowdown, does those wonderful one-sided shots, and it's easy to do when Samantha Morton is doing the awards-worthy face work. We go from the intense nine-minute killing scene in Match Point to Lepselter's own romantic montage, the one that opens Midnight in Paris. Probably the biggest revolution that Lepselter brought to Alan's work 
is moving to digital editing. Alan is a Luddite when it comes to technology, but I think it's more because he is a creature of habit rather than hating technology for technology's sake. For cinematographers from the mid-2000s, Alan had a handful to call on. He couldn't really find anyone to be the on-call guy every year, but the rotating group of Darius Konji, Vilmos Sigmund, Remy Adafarison, Javier Aguirre-Sarobe. So much depended on availability, but it was Darius Konji that Alan would use the most and would get the first call. He was behind the camera for anything else in 2003, after De Palma was unable to make a comeback. He then made Midnight in Paris to Rome with Love, Magic in the Moonlight and Irrational Man. All stunning looking films. Konji brought real exotic beauty to Alan's work, especially those set in Europe. Emma Stone was particularly flattered by Konji's work in Magic in the Moonlight. She remarked that a couple of scenes she was basically sitting in white light, looking impossibly angelic. For Sigmund, Adafarison and Aguirre Sarobe, they stuck to Alan's template. They used his warm colours, his choice of long shots, his one-sided takes. There's even one scene in To Rome With Love on the beach where the umbrellas were blue and Alan digitally changed them to orange. I think that we may be like a little bit too light. Would you prefer that I take the whole thing one shade darker? And uh, well, you know that's that's a possibility. Uh, what, 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 what do you think? What, what would you what would you do? Well, I really don't know. It's possible I could make the whole thing match the upholstery. That's another option. Yes, that's that's brilliant. That's what I would do. I would match match the upholstery on it. Alan liked working with all these cinematographers, and a couple he would have liked to have kept working with, but they were unavailable. But none got to know Alan well enough to truly collaborate and do something outside of Alan's comfort zone. For 2009's Whatever Works, Alan worked with Harris Savitas. A native New Yorker, he was loved by a generation of directors who grew up with Alan's work. He shot films for Gus Van Sant, David Fincher, Sofia Coppola and Noah Bombach. He brought a real modern indie sensibility to Alan's film, working fast and efficiently. Being a New Yorker and indie-minded, there was hope that maybe Alan and Savitas might grow into a fruitful partnership, but sadly he died just a couple of years later. Although he didn't have a clear partner in the 2000s, Alan was still trying to freshen things up in terms of the camera work. It was simple stuff but showed that he was still willing to paint outside the lines. There's the really odd use of split screen in Hollywood ending that looks like the split screens used in TV shows like 24. Alan used flashback fades in The Curse of the Jade Scorpion. He even used iris transitions in Vicky Cristina Barcelona. And then there's the lovely crane shot to start Melinda and Melinda, reminiscent of the impossible camera work in Citizen Kane. Alan was still keeping things interesting for himself, even in the run of his least loved films. But luckily, another change was around the corner. This is a $70 million movie and Raleigh's very unhappy with it. You call him Raleigh? Yeah, and Ted and I, we have to find him. We have to find him and talk with him before he has one of his crazy fits and then re-edits the whole thing and ruins it. Who's Ted? In 2016, Alan hired Vittorio Storaro to film Cafe Society. He already had three Academy Awards to his name for the cinematography on Apocalypse Now, Reds and The Last Emperor. Storaro was not only good, he was distinctive. He had a real philosophy for how cinema should look, to the point where he invented his own aspect ratio. He pioneered the two-to-one aspect ratio that gives time to both scenery and character. In short, and this is a big generalisation, dramas and comedies that focus on humans and acting use 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio. It's not as wide and it focuses on the centre more and the people on screen. 
Most of Alan's films and most comedies and dramas use this aspect ratio. Widescreen, 2.35 to 1, has a lot more room on the sides. Characters can get lost, but you see more of the scenery. It's used for action movies and epics. Alan used it against convention in Manhattan, and it really showed off the city. He did the same with anything else in 2003, and then a run of films starting with Blue Jasmine in 2013. Widescreen took up more of a cinema screen, and I think Alan was embracing that, even though for decades, he kind of rallied against it. Along comes Storaro with his 2 to 1 aspect ratio. It's a common ground. Characters don't get lost, and you still get plenty of scenery. It's become more popular. Many Netflix shows like House of Cards or Stranger Things use 2 to 1. It means less black bars if you watch in a widescreen TV, or in a cinema, or in standard high def. It's perfect for Alan who focuses on characters, but wants to make beautiful films. There is still room for close-ups and city shots. In fact, there's a wonderful dissolve in cafe society that goes from Kristen Stewart on a close-up to the view of the Manhattan skyline, and both are given their due. It also helps that he has a master like Storaro helping him create the shots. Storaro is poetic and philosophical in his approach to visuals. He often draws influence from paintings and art and photography. He understands the technical details deeply, and his ideas are shaping the look of Alan's films for the first time in almost a decade. Storaro cares less for realism. Take Wonder Wheel. The scenes in the house is washed with colour from neon signs outside, and there's no sense of realism. The whole scene is washed in reds and shadows. No real person would have a conversation in this environment. Storaro has also added new energy to Alan's long shots. He embraced it with pushing the blocking to new heights. Alan's last few films have some of his longest shots ever, and the camera moves with the actors. But Storaro zooms and pulls back in choreographed moves, as opposed to the handheld feel of De Palma's moving camera. The four films he's made with Storaro so far have made Alan's films look better than ever. He's due to make another film with Storaro, and that will take him up to five. In terms of number of films, it puts him level with Darius Conji in equal third, behind Gordon Willis and Carla De Palma. Storaro also took Alan into shooting digitally. Along with editing digitally, Alan's world is now purely digital filmmaking. He even owns an iPhone now. We've also seen digital effects enter Alan's films. First, he had a couple of shots of planes in the sky, used as establishing shots into Rome with Love and Blue Jasmine. But Alan embraced VFX in Cafe Society, using effects to recreate accurate scenes of the 1930s, like the Manhattan skyline without skyscrapers, and removing the modern handprints outside LA's Chinese theater. There's more wonderful visual effects in Rifkin's Festival, and especially Wonder Wheel, with work going on to recreate Coney Island as it was a long time ago. Alan loved the results, saying his only issue with it was how long the process takes. I know it's hard, Miles, but try to think of this experience as a miracle of science. To me, a miracle of science is I go into the hospital for a minor operation, I come out the next day, my rent isn't 2,000 months overdue. Through it all, those familiar Woody Allen tropes remain. Allen's last couple of films, Rifkin's Festival and A Rainy Day in New York, feature plenty of scenes that are so Woody Allen. Long takes, long close-ups of Elle Fanning when someone else is talking to her, lots of warm colours, gorgeous landscapes, and in Rifkin's Festival, Alan actually returns to black and white for several scenes, but I assume it was done digitally, and Alan didn't pay for a lab. Alan's work with Storaro is banking up, and word is he will be the cinematographer for Alan's 50th film. He has invigorated Alan's latest films, and they've been doing something different every time. 
For a while, beautiful shots were an expected treat in Alan's films. Now, we know it's going to be beautiful, but hopefully a little bit of anything can happen is back. Alan has never pretended to be a technical whiz. He has learnt lots over the years, but he has relied on talented collaborators all the way. When it comes to the work of Woody Allen, his relationship to the camera will always be studied and scrutinised. He attracts the best cinematographers and imposes on them his particular style. Yet with editors, he maintains long relationships that gives his films a unique rhythm. I love that Alan seems to be still playing around with his relationship with the camera. With Vittorio Storaro, it feels like it's just beginning. And with just one more film, Alyssa Lepselta will actually overtake Susan E. Morse's record of 21 films. But who knows? There could well be more vital collaborators ahead and more exciting ideas to try. Who knows what might happen when Alan next switches on a camera? Mm-hmm. He's a genius. Well, he was a genius, and Helen's a genius, and Dennis is a genius. You know, a lot of geniuses, you know? You should meet some stupid people once in a while. You know, you can learn something. Thanks for listening to this episode. So, wow, this is it. Season 2 almost over. If I have never made it clear, I really enjoy putting together these special episodes. I'm working on the Q&A episode now, and some of the most common feedback I get is ideas for these episodes. I only do one a season, and I might stay like that just so I can plough through all those damn films. But maybe after that, I might do a few more special episodes, especially on little topics like Woody Allen and Ingmar Bergman, or Woody Allen and Central Park, or lots of other ideas you've given me. If you have any more ideas, please send them in woodyallenpages at gmail.com. Thanks to everyone who supported me in some way during this season and last season. The website and the production of the podcast always happens, so if you decide to stick with me in the off-season, that would be great. If you enjoy this podcast, then you can still support me. There's the Patreon, or you can buy me a coffee. You can find the links to both in the description. There's stuff to buy, like books and stickers and things. Or a no-cost way to support me is just to spread the word and to leave me a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you find it. There's news on the Woody Allen front. He just did an interview with Alec Baldwin on Instagram Live. Yes, those words go together. Find out more about it on the website, woodyallenpages.com, and he pretty much confirms that a new film will go into production later this year, which is so exciting. And don't forget to follow me on social media everywhere at Woody Allen Pages. Next week, we close off the season with some comments and questions from you, and I'll talk a little bit about what to expect for Season 3. Thanks for listening. Well, I thought it was terrible. Absolutely terrible. I don't recall seeing anything this This bad. man is sick. I mean, what is this? I slug? thought this was supposed to be a comedy. That was Seagulls, the most horrifying thing cars. I've ever seen. That's horrible. This Except, is a disgrace. Hey, he has no balance left. Listen, I think the guy's losing Somebody his mind. Somebody please cut that projector. Something wrong with him.